appreciate that. I believe we have a cell phone here that belongs to someone. You know, I, I admire the courage that it takes for folks to get up and minister in song and music. And, you know, we don't always get it right. Sometimes we start off wrong. And, uh, and I'm just so proud of our ladies and everyone in our music ministry who is willing to do that. And the good thing is we're all just family, right? So it's okay if we mess up once in a while. If you have your Bible with you today, let's go to Matthew chapter 18. Matthew chapter 18. We're going to be looking uh, at verses 1 through 14 today. Uh, if you have a bulletin, there's an insert on the inside that says our values. And this is a value statement that we're working our way through. And uh, we are on the fifth value. We value children because they are a gift from God and ought to be treasured as such. As we think about what we value as a church, as a family of faith, uh, we want it to be known clearly that we value children. They're not a nuisance. They're not underfoot. Uh, they actually are something that, uh, that uh, we value and want to invest in. And, and so... Uh, when we think about this, we, we believe that every child is a, a gift from God. And we find this truth in the very first book of the Bible. We're in Matthew 18, but I'm going to share some verses with you along the way. Uh, in the very first book of the Bible, Jacob made this statement about children. He said, These are the children God hath graciously given thy servant. The language of the Bible is so important when we think about our worldview and, and how we view children. And from the very first book, it's made clear that children are given from God. They are a gift from God. The same sentiment was echoed by Joseph when he said, They are my sons whom God hath given me in this place. And again, that same language it is that God has given to Joseph uh, those children and then wise King Solomon declared it this way. He said, Lo, children are an heritage of the Lord, and the fruit of the womb is his reward. And so if we're just trying to, to, to find our footing and say, Okay, how does the Bible view children? First and foremost, we understand that, that they are a gift from God, that if we have children, God has given them to us. Sadly, this value is not reflected in our world today. When we look at the numbers, 61 million babies have been aborted in the United States since abortion was legalized in 1973. That is not valuing children. Whatever other argument points you might want to bring up, it is simply stated that shows a devaluing of children's lives. On average, 60 million babies are aborted every year throughout the world. And so... Globally, there are 60 million abortions every year. Uh, of course, China's one-child policy has contributed a lot to that uh, because of it. On any given day, there are over 400,000 children in foster care in America. And so even though there are many people who may have babies, they don't always care for them the way that they should. And so almost half a million children are in foster care in our country. Nearly 700,000 children are abused in the U.S. annually. Now, I'm not trying to depress you today. I'm not trying to bring you down. I just simply want to show you where our world is today. If we say these are our values 
as Christian people, as a church, these are things that we value. We have to understand that, that not everybody in the whole world or even in our own country holds that same value. If that were the case, there would not be 7,000, 700,000 cases of abuse in our country each year. And so we go back to the Bible and we say, what did Jesus teach us about children? What does God teach us about children, the value we should place on them? And that's where I direct you back to Matthew chapter 18. In Matthew 18, Jesus' disciples had just been arguing about which of them would be the greatest in the kingdom. Mark's gospel records that for us, that along the way they were disputing about something, and when they got to where they're going, Jesus says, what were you arguing about? And they, like, uh, like children who have been called, they, they don't say anything, and, and Jesus goes on to address it, uh, that uh, they were arguing about who was going to be the greatest, and in response to that, he calls a child over, he sits, them in, sits the child in the middle of them, and he begins to teach them a lesson about the value of children. Matthew chapter 18, verse 1, At the same time came the disciples unto Jesus, saying, Who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And Jesus called a little child unto him, and set him in the midst of them, and said, Verily I say unto you, Except you be converted and become as little children, you shall not enter into the kingdom of heaven. Whosoever therefore shall humble himself as this little child, the same is greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And whoso shall receive one such little child in my name receiveth me. But whoso shall offend one of these little ones which believe in me, it were better for him that a millstone were hanged about his neck and that he were drowned in the depth of the sea. Woe unto the world because of offenses, for it must needs be that offenses come, but woe to that man by whom the offense cometh. Wherefore, if thy hand or thy foot offend thee, cut them off and cast them from thee. It is better for thee to enter into life halt or maimed rather than having two hands or two feet to be cast into everlasting fire. And if thine eye offend thee, pluck it out and cast it from thee. It is better for you to enter into life with one eye rather than having two eyes to be cast into hell fire. Take heed, now notice the context, he's still talking about children. Take heed that you despise not one of these little ones. For I say unto you that in heaven their angel do always behold the face of my Father which is in heaven. For the Son of Man is come to save that which was lost. How thank you. If a man have a hundred sheep, and one of them be gone astray, doth he not leave the ninety and nine, and goeth into the mountain, and seeketh that which is gone astray? And if so be that he find it, verily I say unto you, he rejoices more over that sheep than of the ninety and nine which went not astray. Verse 14, Even so, it is not the will of your Father which is in heaven that one of these little ones should perish. So the, all 14 of those verses are spoken in the context of children. That child is sitting in the midst of them. And so everything that's said in verses 1 through 14 have a particular uh, connection to children. Let's pray 
and ask God to make his word clear to us today. Heavenly Father, we do want to thank you and praise you because you have given us your word. We want to thank you as Christians that you have given us your Holy Spirit who illuminates your word and helps us to understand it. Father, I thank you that you have given us biblical principles by which we can interpret your word. I pray, Lord, that we would avail ourselves to all of those resources today and that we would come to a biblical conclusion about children today. Father, may it be more than just a headline. May it be more uh, than just a uh, soundbite. May it actually be a deeply held value of our church, and may it be reflected in the way that we do ministry. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. As Jesus is giving this response to his disciples, who's the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Think about that. That's something we all still struggle with today, isn't it? Uh, there's always debate about the greatest football player and the greatest basketball player and the greatest singer and the greatest entertainer. And All of our entertainment industries have these shows every year where they give out awards to the best actor or the best producer and all these things and we're always assessing and saying who is the greatest and Jesus' disciples were doing the same thing they were doing it in a spiritual context well in the kingdom of heaven we're not talking about the secular world we just want to be the greatest in Christ's kingdom who's going to set his right hand who's going to set his left hand who's going to be in charge of something and Jesus does something that is absolutely shocking to them that would have been out of the ordinary and out of the cultural norm. The Lord Jesus calls a nearby toddler. The Greek word there for little child means very little child. And so probably a toddler. And Jesus sets that toddler at the center of these grown men. Well, what does this little kid have to do with our discovery? We're talking about who's the greatest. I mean, that kid doesn't even know how to tie his own sandals. Why is he brought into this conversation? And the Lord uses this young child to illustrate to his disciples that in God's kingdom, the least is the greatest. The last shall be first, and those who humble themselves will be exalted the highest. It is the opposite of human thinking. And so Jesus brings this child sets him down to teach this important lesson and in doing so he gives us some divine truth about the value of children and so three observations I want to share with you today number one God gives children an exemplary place God gives children an exemplary place in verses two through five Jesus takes this child and sets them in the center of them and he tells them that this child is an example that is worthy to be imitated by adults. Is that not what he does? He brings that child in, he sets him down, and he says to them, Verily I say unto you, except you be converted and become as little children, you shall not enter into the kingdom of heaven. And so he gives this child an exemplary position, and he tells the grown-ups that are in the room, Hey, if you're going to get into the kingdom of heaven, much less become the greatest in the kingdom of heaven it's not going to come through self-promotion it's going to come through humbling yourself and becoming like a little child why 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 would that be the example why well I mean there's so many things that children don't know right we have to train them about everything in life 
those of you who have brought home newborn babies like Adam and Nicole just did, you know you have a long road ahead of you of things that you have to teach them. You have to teach them how to care for themselves. You have to teach them how to talk and help them learn how to walk. And you've got to teach them how to dress and color coordinate their clothes, right? I mean, there's just a lot of stuff that we have to teach them. So how do these untrained juvenile human beings get put into this place that God says they're an example that's worthy of imitation? Well, a few things I notice. One, children are trusting and not skeptical. Did you notice that when Jesus called that little child to himself, the child did not run away? That child actually came to Jesus because we we're trusting Jesus. White, I believe you need to pay attention this morning, son. Let me take that for you. You see, training doesn't end when your children make it to middle school, I've discovered. There's still some to do here. But children are trusting. They are not skeptical. When Jesus calls this child, this child trusts him that he is not going to do ill, that he's not going to do harm, but he willingly comes to Jesus. How do grown-ups need to be like children? One, they need to be trusting they need to understand that not everything is to be seen through a skeptical eye. Too often you and I as human beings get a little bit of intellectual capital in between our ears and we begin to scrutinize everything. And when we come to this whole issue of God and faith and the Bible, all of a sudden instead of being students, we want to be skeptics and we want to put it to the test. Well, is that so? Is this God? Is this how He made the earth? Is this Bible the Word of God? And Jesus says, hey, look, you've got to become as little children. You have to humble yourself. You've got to learn how to trust. Not only that, children are innocent and not corrupted by sin. In verse 3, he goes on to say this, Verily I say unto you, except you be converted and become as little children, you will not enter into the kingdom of heaven. You know, children have this golden age in their life where they have not been corrupted by sin. Now, we know that everybody has a sin nature, right? We're born with that sin nature, and that sin nature shows up. But we also learn that there's a whole other level of sinning when kids transition out of that adolescent age into the adult age, is there not? And when we think about that, we look at this and say, why would Jesus say we need to be like children? One is because those children are innocent. They're not corrupted by sin. Sin. We can't allow the corruption of sin to keep us from Christ. But also, children are humble and not infected by pride. In verse 4, Jesus says, Whosoever therefore shall humble himself as this little child, the same is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Humble yourself as this little child. Do you realize that that little child that Jesus has called to himself has not went through a, a, a extended period of training to learn how to be humbled. They have not been to humility school. It is just part of their nature at that age. Those kids are humble. Now, it doesn't take long for us to get infected with pride, and that can happen in childhood as we begin wanting to make a name for ourselves or do better than someone else. But in childhood, there is a humbleness about children that they are not infected by pride. And God says, hey, look, children are valuable. You need to imitate the, the example of children 
because pride will keep you from coming to Christ. Pride will keep you from submitting to God. Pride will bar you from going to heaven. You say, pride will bar me from going to heaven? How is that possible? Yes, if you're so prideful that you think you're self-sufficient, then you'll never trust Jesus, and trusting Jesus is the only way to be saved. Children are special to the Lord. Look at what Jesus said in verse 5. And whoso shall receive one such little child in my name receiveth me. What does he mean? Jesus is giving this child a special place. What does he mean that if you receive a child in my name, it's like receiving me? Well, the indication of verse 5 is that to serve a child is to serve Christ. You see, sometimes in ministry we start quantifying things and we think, well, if ministry really matters, then I've got to minister to a lot of people and I've got to minister to grown-up people and I've got to minister to influential people and I've got to minister to people who, who have the resources to go out and do something. And sadly, a lot of times in ministry budgets and church budgets, we focus it on those things because we say this is where we're going to accomplish the most. But Jesus says, hey, if you serve a child, you are serving me. I told my, my small group class this morning, you know, when we invest in a children's ministry, it's never money that's going to come back. Those little boys and girls don't have a job. They don't tithe. They don't contribute. They don't come in and work on things, right? It is something that we are giving money to, but we don't, we don't figure out our budget based on whether or not we're going to recoup the expense that we're spending. We believe that they are worth the investment. And so Jesus says that when you serve a child, it's to serve Christ. That word that he uses there, receive, it means to welcome as an honored guest and to give special attention to meet their needs. Whosoever receives one such little one in my name, to receive them like an honored guest and pay special attention to meet their needs. In fact, it is... The same language that is used by Jesus Christ in Matthew 25. We don't have time this morning to turn there, but in Matthew 25, he makes this statement and he says that when, when he comes back as king, he's going to line up the nations of the world and he says, hey, you know what? When you gave a drink of water, you gave it to me. When you fed somebody, you gave fed me. When you clothed somebody, you fed. And then to the others, he's saying, when you didn't do this, you didn't do it to me. And they said, when did we feed you? When did we clothe you? When did we... Uh, give you a drink of water and he says when you when you did it to the least of one of these ones you did it to me and so when you and I think about children's ministry we need to realize hey maybe they don't have the resources that an adult has to take out and multiply that ministry but they are worth it because children are a gift from God given in trust to parents and adults and we show our care for Christ and how we care for children. The second observation I make is that God gives child abusers an eternal penalty. Verses 6 through 10. But whoso shall offend one of these little ones which believe in me, it were better for him that a millstone were hanged about his neck and, and, and that he were drowned in the depth of the sea. And then he goes on, he talks about cutting off your hand. And it's better to do that than to go into everlasting fire. Or plucking out your eye, it's better to do that than to go into hell fire. Verse 10, take heed that you despise not one of these little ones, he says. 
What, what is first noticeable in, is the extreme punishment of an offender, is it not? Hey, it would be better for you to have this weighty millstone tied around your neck and for you to be dumped in the sea to drown to death than for you to offend one of these little ones. That's an extreme punishment. And in that context, he goes on and he says, Hey, look, if, if, if it's better for you to cut your hand off than to use it to sin against one of these little ones. It's better for you to pluck your eye out than to allow that to lead you into some sort of temptation that would be offensive and hurtful to live. That's what you notice first, is it not? I mean, it's an extreme statement. And Jesus said this, it's recorded in the other Gospels, but really he only said this one time. And it's extreme language when he talks about cutting off a hand or a foot or plucking out an eye. I mean, you, you would be shocked to hear that today. I remember my pastor years ago talked about hearing a radio pastor one time, and he was driving down the road, and uh, it was one of those gruff old radio pastors, and he was preaching on this subject. He says, that's right, it'd be better for you to reach into your glove box and pull out that screwdriver that's in there and to jam it into your eye socket and pop it out than it would to go into hell. And He said that was a radio preacher message he never forgot. But can I tell you, this is not a radio preacher with a raspy southern voice this is the Lord Jesus Christ and he makes an extreme statement why because there is an eternal penalty for anyone who would hurt a child that's what we notice first but, but then we notice that these extreme measures cutting off a hand, cutting off a foot hanging a millstone around your neck, plucking out an eye are actually said to be better than committing an abuse of act against a child and facing God's judgment. Did you notice that? Look at it. It is in there in verse 6. But whoso shall offend one of these little ones which believeth in me, it were better for him. Verse 8, Wherefore, if thy hand or thy foot offend thee, cut them off and cast them from thee. It is better for thee, tender into life, halt or maim, rather than having two hands or two feet be cast in eternal fire. Verse 9, And if thine eye offend thee, pluck it out and cast it from thee. It is better for thee to enter into life with one eye rather than having two eyes to be cast into hell fire. In Jesus' pronouncement of God's judgment... He says, look, it would be better for you to do this than to hurt a child and stand before God and receive his judgment. Jesus talks about something here that a lot of modern preachers shy away from, and that is hell. You know, we live in a day and time when people are uh, denouncing the use of hellfire and brimstone, and, uh, you know, that's the preaching of the past, and we can't preach that way today, and we've got to draw people in. Let me remind you that 11 out of the 12 times that hell is mentioned in the Bible, it is spoken by the lips of Jesus. And so if I'm going to be a Jesus follower, I'm going to believe that there is a hell. If I'm going to be a Jesus follower, I'm going to preach that there is a hell. If I'm going to be a Jesus follower, I'm going to realize that hell is a literal, eternal destination. It's a real place, and it's a place of unimaginable torment where sinners go when they die. It is heaven, or it is hell. 
and there is no in-between. In Luke 16, the Bible says that the rich man died and immediately he lift up his eyes in hell, being in torments. Oh, by the way, Jesus is the one that told that story. And so Jesus, in this text of Scripture, when talking about children and how that we ought to recognize and how we ought to receive them and how we ought to care for them, he tells us about a place called hell. His first statement is everlasting fire in verse 8. Fire is literal. The word, the Greek word that is translated fire there is always translated fire. It literally means fire. So if you hear somebody say, well, you know, there is a hell, but there's not really fire in hell. No, Jesus said there was fire there, literal fire. And that word everlasting, that comes from the Greek word where we get the word eon. Eon is how we label an indefinite period of time. In the eons past or eons future, that's saying this is, this is an extreme amount of time that has an indefinite period to it. And so Jesus says, hey, look, for those that would hurt a child and they face the judgment of God, they will be sent to eternal, everlasting torment in fire in Jesus' second statement, he says, hell fired. You see it at the end of verse 9. Uh, then having two eyes to be cast into hell fire. The same word for fire. It is literal fire, but hell is there instead of everlasting. And so Jesus is talking about the same place, but he's telling us two things. He's telling us what it's like. He's telling us how long it lasts. That word hell is translated from the Greek word Gehenna. And some of the modern translations have tried to soften the language and so they have translated or transliterated uh, the word instead of hell. They will just use the Greek word Gehenna. Uh, but uh, when we dig into that, we need to realize where that word Gehenna comes from. Gehenna is a name for the valley of Hinnom. And the Valley of Hinnom was infamous for two reasons. So why did Jesus use this, right? Uh, let, me, let me just remind you of some things. Jesus used some terms that were already in the culture, but then he brought them into the context of the church and the kingdom of God, and he used them that way. It doesn't mean that he invented those words. He took words that were already there, but he gave them a new nuanced meaning or an amplified meaning. For instance, the word church, ecclesia, was already in use in Jesus' day before he started the church. It was a called out assembly of citizens. And so Jesus, using their frame of reference, takes that term out of their common language and says, this is what my body will be like. It is a called out assembly of citizens of the kingdom of God. And so he does the same thing. When he's talking about this place called hell, he uses the term Gehenna, the valley of Hinnom. Why was it infamous? The first reason it was infamous was because it was the place of child sacrifice. When the Israelites came into the land of Canaan, it was populated by other countries that had pagan gods and pagan traditions, and some of them did certain things and others did others. And this one group had this religion where they worshipped a god named Moloch. 
and Moloch was a god that they would sacrifice children to. As a matter of fact, you'll read about it in the Old Testament how God hated that and he ran them out. But the sad thing is, is that some of the Israelites forsook Jehovah, Elohim, their God, and they made sacrifices to Moloch. They literally took their babies and sacrificed them to this made-up God. Now, if that wasn't bad enough, let me just tell you how they did that. Moloch had an image that had been made in the valley of Hinnom. It was a brass image like a statue. It was a hollow image of this statue of Moloch with his hands and arms held this way. They would build a fire in the hollow cavity of its abdomen and get it red hot. And then when they sacrificed the baby, they would take the baby and lay it or throw it into the scalding arms of that burning furnace statue. And they would literally roast to death. I can't, I can't even imagine that as I was researching this and reading the description. I can't, I can't imagine anybody doing that, much less a parent. I'm telling you, it's one of the biggest stains in the history of of Israel and God did not take kindly to it and so in the reign of Josiah Josiah took the valley of Hinnom and he turned it into the trash dump of Israel no houses were built there no lakes no ponds no anything else no fields trash he destroyed it and he turned it into the trash dump some 700 years before Jesus came. And in Jesus' day, the Valley of Hinnom is still the trash dump of Jerusalem. But we, you, you and I know about trash is that trash piles up, right? And around here, we dig holes and we bury it and then we put some more on top of it and we dig holes and we bury it. And we, or if you're in a city, they have these giant incinerators and they burn it up and reduce it to ashes and, and non-flammables, uh, and then they dispose of that. So what's the solution here? Well, in the Valley of Hinnom, there was a constant fire that was always burning in the trash heap so that it could consume the consumables. And even though there was nobody tending that fire all the time, that fire would continue to burn. It would smolder. It had enough internal heat and enough fuel and enough oxygen that it had been burning continuously for centuries. Not only that, the Valley of Hinnom, because of all that trash, was a place of disease. It was a place of maggots and worms and that sort of thing. And so when Jesus is using the term Gehenna and he calls it hellfire, he's using something that had already been adopted in the minds of the Jews. They already used Gehenna to describe the place of punishment in the afterlife for the wicked. And so Jesus says, hey, look, you mess with a child, you will spend eternity in hell fire. You will spend eternity in punishment for your crime against this child. As my mom used to say, God has a hot place in hell for people who mistreat children. And so if we're going to form our biblical worldview, we're going to understand that those children are precious in the sight of God. And that's the verse where we get the idea of a guardian angel because it says their angel is always beholding the face of their father. What it's saying is that God knows what happens. There's not one abuse, not one mistreatment, not one wrong that's ever done to a child that God does not notice or know about and will not deal with justly. But the third observation, quickly, 
is that God gives children an evangelistic priority. As Jesus continues to have this discourse and he has this child sitting in the middle of them, he makes this statement, for the Son of Man has come to save that which was lost. He goes on to say, if a shepherd had a hundred sheep and one of them was lost, he would go into the mountains until he found the little lamb and he'd bring it back and he'd celebrate over that more than the ninety and nine. And then he finishes, concludes it with verse 14, even so... It is not the will of your Father which is in heaven that one of these little ones should perish. Hey, the old song is true. Jesus loves the little children. So he goes on to tell his disciples that the gospel is not just for grown-ups, but it's for children too. He came to seek and to save them like a shepherd seeking for a little lamb. Does the shepherd put more value on the adult sheep than he does on the lambs? No, he searches for them and goes looking for them. He does not want any of them to perish, so he gives us a priority to seek their salvation. He's not willing that any of these little ones should perish. The adolescent years of life are the prime time for a child to come to Christ. Did you know that statistics reveal that 85% of Christians, 85% of Christians say that they got saved before the age of 15? 85%. 85% of the people who are saved made that decision in their adolescent years. Think about it. They are fertile soil for the seed of the gospel because they have had less exposure to sin. They've had less time to develop sinful habits. They've had less indoctrination of secular thoughts. They've had less self-dependence. They're used to living in a dependent state on their parents. They are more conscious of morality. Children have this strong sense of wrong and right, and when they do wrong, it bothers them in their conscience. But as we grow into adulthood, we tune that out. Children still have it. They are less jaded by the hardships of life, and they are more trusting. No wonder Jesus gives this priority to his disciples but would you believe that the disciples didn't get it the first time they heard it? The very next chapter, in chapter 19, there are some people trying to bring some children to Jesus. And the Bible says that the disciples rebuked them and acted like Jesus had more important things to do than to mess with little children. To which Jesus says, don't hinder them from coming to me help them come to me suffer little children to come unto me and forbid them not for of such is the kingdom of heaven the disciples didn't get it the first time do you see that chapter 18 14 verses Jesus is telling them how important children are he tells them to make them a priority in evangelism and the very next chapter when kids try to come to Jesus they think Jesus doesn't have time to minister to kids how about you? Do you get it? Do you get it? Do you get that we're supposed to value children like God values them? Do you get that we are supposed to help them come to Christ? Not only are they fertile soil for the seed 
of the gospel, but they don't have the same ability to come to Christ on their own without us going and reaching and teaching and helping them. Here at Cedar Bluff, we value children and we have many ministries like Sunday school, like children's church, like Awana on Wednesday night. Did you know we're filling up our vans over to capacity and having to run them uh, multiple times to try and get all the kids that want to come to church on Wednesday night? Upward basketball, community day, vacation Bible school, and the list goes on and on. We value children, but listen and I think everybody in this would say, that's right, I'm proud of my church, I'm glad that we do that. But we struggle to find volunteers to staff all those ministries. In fact, Upward Basketball was canceled this year because we had not one volunteer who was willing to be a coach. Our Awana ministry needs more volunteers to help serve in it. We need more volunteers to drive the vans. We're wearing our van drivers out. If we had volunteers not only to drive vans on Wednesday nights, but if somebody would say, hey, you know what, I'll drive some vans on Sunday, we could bring more children to Sunday school. But you know what, that would probably necessitate some more Sunday school classes, which would require more volunteers. You understand how all of this hinges on us? Our values are supposed to be reflected in our actions. And so Cedar Bluff Baptist Church, this is a call to action. I'm so glad that you're here today. It thrills my heart to see our auditorium fill up every Sunday morning. But let me tell you, if we truly value children the way that God values them, we would do more than just show up to be fed. We would show up to serve. And we would realize that to serve a child is to serve Christ. And listen, we're like the disciples. We understand it's not always easy. They're noise-making, mess-making. Sometimes they kind of seem to make us want to pull our hair out but we are looking at eternity and we need people who are willing to serve in children's ministry so would you bow your heads and stand to your feet with me this morning as we bow our heads and stand to our feet before we pray I just want to ask is God speaking to you about children's ministry you, you may not know exactly what it is that you want to do or need to do or be willing to do but I I'm asking is God speaking to you do you hear that still small voice in your spirit as as we're studying God's word I, I want to ask you to do this would you just simply step out from where you are and come to the altar and pray about it would you take that step Look, I'm not going to write your name down. I'm not going to come hunt you down and say, hey, you stepped out an invitation. Now I need you at Awana. I'm just asking sincerely, if you're here today, right now, and you say, I will at least pray about this, would you step out and do it at the altar? Come now, before we start to pray, before we sing, anybody in this room that says, I I'm willing to at least pray about it. God, would you have me to do that? God, make me willing to do that. God, where would you have me to serve to do that? Because this is where it starts, folks. You and I have to get the burden that God has for children. If you're willing to pray about it, would you step out and come this morning? Heavenly Father, I just want to thank you and praise you for the children that you have given to us.
we recognize that that is a great responsibility, not only in parenthood, but in ministry. I'm so thankful for the faithful folks that are in this room and out of this room that are ministering to children throughout the week and even ministering to children right now. God, I pray that you would bless them for their labors and for their efforts. Lord, I pray for the children in the world, those who are neglected, those who are abandoned, those who are abused, those who have never heard the name or the gospel of Jesus Christ. God, I pray and ask that you would pour grace into their lives through your churches and that we would go out and seek them and try to reach them and do what we can to share with them the good news of Jesus Christ. Father, I pray that you would call volunteers, that there would be people who would say, I'm willing, I'm willing to do it, I'm willing to make myself uncomfortable for the value that children have to you, Lord. Father, I want to pray also this morning for all of these shoeboxes we have that are all intended for children around the world. Lord, we realize that not only do kids need to hear the gospel under the shadow of our steeple, but they need to hear the gospel in the far lands of the world. And I'm so thankful for the people who have given and pack these shoe boxes. Lord, I pray that they would find the reception uh, that they need and that many children would come to Christ because of it. Father, I just pray and ask that you would work in our hearts to help us to see the value of children and not just to give lip service to it, but to take action about it. And I pray that in Jesus' name. Amen.